Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. I was um, uh, reminded recently of a story, a short story about an elementary school teacher who asked a boy, one of her students in January after they got back from Christmas break, uh, she asked him, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? And uh, the boy said, no, I, I didn't. But that's okay. It wasn't my birthday. And uh, I, I love that story because it certainly gets the focus back on who we're supposed to be celebrating, right? But it is easy to get lost in what the world tells us about Christmas, isn't it? It's just, there's so much bombardment. I mean, I, I like the Christmas commercials, but on the other hand, I don't like them. I have this love-hate with them, uh, relationship with them. But, but here's, here's the fact. Christmas exists because of us but it is not about us. Had we not been lost in our sin, no Savior would be needed. Had we been able to save ourselves, no Savior would be needed to rescue us. And so the Christmas story is bigger than a baby born in a manger, and it's part of a larger story God's been orchestrating and planning since the beginning of time. And it's a story about God fulfilling promises at the perfect time, at the perfect time. We're going to take a break today from our Ephesians series uh, in the book of Ephesians, excuse me, and I wanted to share a message with you that I think is timely for the Christmas season, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, And if you forgot your Bible, don't have one, if you just raise your hand, one of our ushers will loan one to you so that you can follow along. Isaiah chapter 7. And then I've also given you an outline with some blanks to follow along uh, in the sermon note handout that's in the worship folder and uh, so that you can take some notes and you can have some things to take home with you and maybe use in your personal devotions. Um, Isaiah chapter 7. As you turn there, let me give you some background on Isaiah, just some context, some brief context. Uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was written between 740 and 680 B.C. uh, by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the Lord's longest-serving prophets, and he had a difficult assignment. Uh, The time in which Isaiah ministered to God's people uh, was another season of political and spiritual decline. The northern kingdom, as I'll show you here on the map, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been conquered by the Assyrians as part of their punishment from God for their disobedience. So they were down. And the next to go down was the southern kingdom, which falls in 586 B.C., called the kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom was the only remnant of God's people left standing at the time, Isaiah is written, And the Lord had dispatched Isaiah to go and preach to them and call them to repent and come back to him so that they wouldn't fall eventually, but they wouldn't listen. They had once again turned their back on God. They were practicing pagan idolatry, offering their children as sacrifices to other gods and doing many other wicked things. And so the Lord sends Isaiah to Judah, the southern kingdom, to explain why they would be conquered by the Babylonians and then exiled, taken away from their precious homeland for 70 years, starting in 586 B.C. I like to call this a spanking and a timeout. Uh, So after this spanking and 70-year timeout that they would get, the Lord planned on bringing his people back to their homeland and rebuilding their nation again. The book of Isaiah can be divided into two halves, just simply speaking. Chapters 1 through 39 uh, contain a confrontational rebuke by the Lord. It's, It's Isaiah, well, the Lord speaking through Isaiah, saying, here's your sin, please repent, and here's what's going to happen if you don't. Just like any loving parent would, the Lord 
essentially says through Isaiah, this is how you sin, this is how it hurts me, and this is what your consequence will be. Next, in chapters 40 to 66, there's more comforting words about restoration from God. And so although their trouncing by Babylon is still a hundred years away, interestingly, the people of Judah were, they were like anxious children. I don't know if you ever got like this. I know I did. Before I was going to get a spanking from my dad, it was like the anticipation of the spanking was worse than the spanking. Or even worse than worse than that was the anticipation was bad, and then the spanking was even worse. So, um, but, but it's like that for the people of Judah. They were, they were anticipating it. They were like, oh no, what are we going to do? But for this reason, the Lord provides some encouragement and hope in the second half of the book of what he's going to do after their exile. Now, interestingly, the last half of the book isn't the only place where there's encouragement. Uh, the Lord sprinkles in some encouragement in the first half when he's rebuking and confronting their sin. And he pulls back the curtain a little bit and shares some promises about his future plans. So there's some context on what's happening in Isaiah. Here's the big idea I want to talk about today. And it's this. The Lord keeps his precious promises in his perfect timing. The Lord keeps his precious promises in his perfect timing. Some Christians are unaware that the Christmas story began not in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 2, but rather in the Old Testament when the Lord made a series of promises about a Messiah who would be the king the people had always wanted. During our time together this morning, I'd like us to look at a few promises given uh, about a Savior before he was born as the baby in the manger. And for many, this is, I know for many of you, the, the Christmas season is the most wonderful time of the year, but for some, it's not. Uh, it's a difficult time of year. And so it's my hope and prayer uh, this morning that this message will multiply the wonder for most of you or restore the wonder for the rest of you. So with the Lord's help, I'd like to answer this question today. How can the backstory of the Christmas story encourage us today? That's what I hope to answer. And let's begin by looking at two of the most popular Old Testament verses about the coming Messiah. Uh, the first is found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to read verses 10 to 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord, your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I, I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. It is too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's the first of three truths this morning I want to share with you uh, on your outline. Number one is this, the Lord promised to meet our greatest need. The Lord promised to meet our greatest need. After the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord began to mention occasionally throughout the Old Testament a large-scale plan to redeem mankind from their sin, and He was going to do so by sending a Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one or Christ. The Messiah was to be more than a great teacher, more than a moral example, more than a picture of compassionate care. The Lord knew we would need a Savior, and so our need was confirmed time and time and again throughout the Old Testament as the people of Israel and Judah were faithful for a while and then unfaithful. Repented, got right, they were faithful for a while, and it was just a roller coaster spiritual life. And let's be honest, we're all the same way, aren't we? We have our good seasons with the Lord, and we have our bad seasons where we struggle. We, we go through seasons where we rebel against the Lord, the Lord sends a prophet to speak into our lives. 
in some form, calls us to repentance, we may get some discipline from the Lord and we walk with Him again for a while. And then the cycle repeats itself. Well, Unlike us, in order to maintain a relationship with the Lord, the people of Israel had to follow a sacrificial system that he had established early in the Old Testament law books. And without getting too much detail here, I just want to give you a brief background so that you can understand how big a deal it was that Jesus came. Back in the Old Testament days, if you or one of your children sinned, you were required as an Israelite to choose the best animal from your flock, not your worst, not the one with deformities, but the best one, and to take it down to the local temple, give it to the priest, and have that priest sacrifice that animal so that you could have your sins atoned for or your family's sins atoned for. Now, I know some of you are thinking, my goodness, I wouldn't even have a flock. I mean, it's like... uh, I'd be having to buy animals off my neighbor, you know, yeah, the kid acted up again, okay. So, uh, weren't you here earlier this morning? Yeah, we were, Mr. Levite, sorry. But part of the good news of Christmas story is found that in Hebrews 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, there is where the author of Hebrews explains how it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's Hebrews 10, 4. However, in Christ... Uh, He provided an all-time single sacrifice and then sat down at the right hand of God, ending the Old Testament sacrificial system. I say all this because we need to be reminded that our greatest need is not expensive gifts at Christmas time. Ski trips, time off from work, thankful kids, cookies, or a kiss under the mistletoe. Don't get me wrong, all those things are great, but they are not our greatest need. Our greatest need is a solution to our sin problem. And in light of all this, the Lord made a series of promises before the birth of Christ that better days are coming. Now the dictionary defines a promise as a declaration or assurance that one will complete a specific task or meet a need. It's a declaration or an assurance that one will complete a specific task or meet a need. Promises, though, create expectations, don't they? If somebody promises to do something for you or to you, you expect them to follow through. And the Lord delivered because He knew once He promised, He knew His people would have expectations. He delivered those results through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah's name, before we unpack this text a little more, you should know that Isaiah's name means Yahweh is salvation. And the overall theme of the book Isaiah is salvation. And we're about to see that as the Lord lays out the evidence of Judah's long-term sin problem, he also had a long-term solution. And so, the promised Messiah, as you see there in your outline, would have many titles reflecting his character, such as letter A is Emmanuel. It sometimes is spelled with an I, sometimes with an E, depending on what Bible translation or what song you're listening to. But it means the same. In verse 14 there of Isaiah 7, uh, Isaiah, the Lord speaking through Isaiah says, The virgin shall conceive. The word used for virgin in the Hebrew text uh, was used to refer to an unmarried woman who is old enough to marry. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, uh, we're told that she will be with child from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. Thus, the Messiah would not be conceived by natural means, but by a miraculous conception. This is important to clarify, and I'm pointing this out because critics of Christianity have tried to discredit the deity of Christ and the possibility of a virgin birth. But it's also important because a miraculous conception would protect Jesus from inheriting the sin nature we all have. So it allowed Jesus to be human but not be a sinner. That's another reason why it's important. Next, in verse 14, we're told that 
we will call his name Emmanuel, God the Father, naming the future son that's coming. Emmanuel is one of many names given to the Christ child. This one, of course, means God with us, as we hear so often in the carols. It's a nod to the fact that those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for their salvation will no longer be separated from God by their sin, and God would no longer be distant and difficult to reach out to or connect with. He'd be more accessible. Instead, God would come down to dwell with man, and Christ followers would be able to have God with them through the indwelling Holy Spirit. So close, in fact, that Jesus would have the same blood, the same flesh, same breath, same struggles that we all have. So he would be able to identify with us and sympathize with us. Next, if you would turn to chapter 9 of Isaiah, just flip back a couple pages. Chapter 9 and in verse 6, there's some more names that the Lord shares about the coming Messiah. So chapter Isaiah 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So here's, again, uh, names in the Old Testament. I want to make sure you understand this. In the Old Testament, it was common that when God gave a name to someone, He was either uh, describing what their character would be like, predicting their future, or both. And so we see this certainly in the case of the coming Messiah. Here's letter B in your outline. We're told the Messiah would be called a wonderful counselor. You probably have heard that in some of the seasonal carols we listen to. Contrary to the previous kings that had limited knowledge and demonstrated a lack of wisdom in their leadership, This king, this coming Messiah, would be a wonderful counselor. This king would be the wisest leader who had ever lived. And he would be able to rule justly because he was not a sinner. So, as the famous Christmas carol, Joy to the World, says, He rules the world with truth and grace. And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The songwriter is speaking about Jesus' rule over the world, especially during his millennial reign and when he establishes the new heaven and new earth in in the future, that he will rule the world with both truth and grace, and he will do it better than anybody ever has in world history. So when Jesus Christ establishes his millennial kingdom in the future, we'll finally have a leader who will never, ever make a mistake. Can you imagine that? We'll have a leader who will never make a promise he can't keep. He'll never fail to keep a promise he's made, and he'll never make a decision with political motives because he's without sin. He'll have no one, other, no one else to please other than his father. Next, we're told, let us see, he will rule as a mighty God. So although the Messiah would be a teacher, Isaiah wants us to know that the Messiah would be no pushover, though. He, he won't be bullied by anybody. This king will have the power to implement his plans to perfection. That means no one will be able to oppose him, undermine him, or overthrow him. Because he's omnipotent and he's omniscient. Next, he's an everlasting father, letter D. This is a reference to the Messiah's relationship to time. He will reign eternally. Contrary to previous kings, uh, Jesus will not be hindered by time, mortality, A changing political landscape, oh man, too bad Jesus isn't going to be able to keep his throne because now the Democrats have the Senate. It's not going to be that. Jesus won't be subject to term limits. 
There'll be stability in his government because he will always rule in the new world. And to make that even more clear, letter E, he's called the Prince of Peace. Finally, Jesus would, he'll bring peace. And I think, this, there's a, I think there's two meanings here on two different levels. First of all, Jesus will bring peace between God and men who repent of their sin and trust in him alone for salvation. So he makes peace possible between God and man or a woman who establishes a relationship with Christ, meaning there's no more enmity between God and the sinner. Of course, again, conditional upon receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. But there's another level that he's a prince of peace as well. He'll also rule his millennial kingdom in peace because no one will be able to make war with him. And he will not need to make war with anyone else because there will be no one else to to oppose him. There'll be no one else ruling in the world but him. And so one of the things that makes the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and new earth fantastically wonderful to look forward to for believers is that there'll be peace, finally. No more terrorism. No more hate crimes. No more wars. Sanctions. And all the things that we hear about on the news today. So the Lord keeps His precious promises in His perfect timing. Next, if you would flip to uh, the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm following a logical, cynical, uh, maybe I should say it this way, the cynical, logical thought process of a cynic here. (laughs) And here's what I mean by that. Um, The next question after hearing point one and the subpoints that some people raise is, oh yeah, well, if God's so good at keeping promises, how come some of this stuff hasn't happened yet? I mean, so, so Jesus came, but then he left, and yeah, we still got a lot of problems in this world. I'm thinking of you. So look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 10. Peter writes, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the Lord, excuse me, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here's number two on your outline. The Lord will sometimes delay fulfilling his promises. The Lord will sometimes delay fulfilling his promises, or shall I say, it will feel like he's delaying to us, but not to him. Peter is writing in the mid-first century to an audience who is suffering and being persecuted for their faith. They were longing for relief from their persecution, and they were longing for the Lord's return. Now, just as most of us would, his audience thought the Lord was taking too long. Hey, I'm suffering. My life is miserable. We've got Nero, the Roman emperor, who hates Christians and is trying to run us off the earth. Let's go, Lord. You said you're coming back. When are you going to do that? Come on now. Pain heightens our urgency for relief and our desire for the Lord to come through. But these verses are a good reminder that the Lord exists outside of time. It means that he does not see or experience time like we do. For example, on Thanksgiving morning, our family likes to watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. How about you guys? Anybody? Well, while watching, have you ever noticed that we are only able to see the portion of the parade that network television shows us, which is set up on the main stage, usually at the main entrance of Macy's. 
However, if we were to uh, go up a few thousand feet in a blimp or, say, use a drone to see uh, from a couple thousand feet up what the parade looks like, we could see what's coming for the parade. We could see what's present in front of us, and we could see what already has passed. In a similar sense, we can only experience time in the present because we're here on earth, and we can only see time that has passed. But the Lord, on the other hand, he's got the drone shot. He's up in the blimp. He can see everything from the past and in the present and in the future. And he, but he doesn't experience what's happening in the present because he's outside of time. He's outside of the parade. Or another way to say it is he's able to see the past, present, and future parade all at once, and he experiences it all at once. So this is why a thousand years seems like a day to him, but feels like a thousand years to us. Now, I wanted to mention this because one of the often overlooked parts of the Christmas story is the period of time between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament, Malachi and Matthew. It's commonly called the intertestamental period. There, if you want to impress somebody at the Christmas party, the office Christmas party you're going to, say, hey, you know what the intertestamental period is? Let me tell you. It spanned 400 years. After Malachi died, the Lord stopped sending prophets, stopped providing signs, stopped doing miracles, and just seemed to shut the doors of heaven. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, as of this year, the United States of America is just 243 years old. And you think about what's happened in the world since then, that still doesn't cover the 400 years that the Lord was silent and seemed to be doing nothing. Imagine growing up in a Jewish family, going to the worship every week in the temple and hearing the amazing stories about a God that was active and moving and working on behalf of his people and answering prayers and to live your whole life and never see it yourself. To only hear from your parents and grandparents what God used to do, but never see it. And so, as you can imagine, in 400 years, there were a few generations of Jewish people that were born, lived, then died, born, lived, and died, born, lived, and died, and they didn't get to see with their own eyes the Lord fulfill His promises or do anything spectacular. They didn't even hear from one of God's prophets. During this period of history, a handful of empires rose and fell, the Jews continued to be persecuted, and some lost hope that the Messiah would ever come. It may have seemed like the Lord wasn't working, but he actually was doing quite a bit to set up the birth of Christ, like a chess player moving his pieces into place to make the ultimate checkmate. For example, the Jews continued to proclaim the Messianic prophecies during that silent season, and they did so throughout the Middle East, and it helped prepare the way for the arrival of Jesus. For a short period of time in those 400 years, the Greeks ruled the world, allowing them to establish their language as the main language that would be spoken throughout the Middle East. This led to the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into what's called the Greek Septuagint, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So more people could read the Old Testament and understand what God was doing in the past and what God said he would do in the future. That's significant. When the Roman Empire then rose to, prompt to dominance towards the end of this 400-year period, they made a profound impact on the world. The Romans were renowned for their systems and processes. They were the best administrators at the time that had ever lived. So when they came to power and occupied the Jewish people, the Romans brought an extended period of peace and stability through their military dominance. 
a stable government through their laws, and intelligence through their education system, and infrastructure such as roads to facilitate travel and processes such as efficient means for collecting taxes. All things that would help the gospel message spread faster than it would have been able to spread before this period. All of these things set the table so the gospel could spread and apostles could more quickly travel to preach the word to more people and do so easier. Now, why is that significant today? Well, I think the intertestamental period reveals some things about how God works that can encourage us. And so here's letters A, B, and C, and D on your outline. I think there's some hidden encouragement in this 400 years of silence before Jesus is born. And the first is this. The Lord will be silent during seasons of your relationship with him. The Lord will be silent during seasons of your relationship with him. The first time I experienced this, I, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I, I, I was so anxious. I thought I'd lost my salvation or done something horribly wrong. But when I discovered I wasn't the first one to experience this, I found some relief. David, for example, mentions the maddening silence of God many times in the Psalms. Psalm 13, for example, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Why are you hiding your face from me? I think it's in Psalm 27 where David says, Lord, you tell me to seek your face while I am your hiding. Tells you how desperate he was to hear from God, to commune with Him, to get God to help him while he was struggling, and how he felt like the Lord had betrayed him or left him. I also discovered that not only had Jesus experienced this, but also Protestant heroes such as Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and Oswald Chambers and many others have written about seasons of silence in their walk with the Lord. Here's, here's an encouraging quote I wanted to share, from you, uh, share with you excuse me, from Charles Spurgeon, the uh, famous 19th century British preacher. He wrote these words of encouragement after experiencing his own season of silence with the Lord. He says, quote, There are seasons when the brightness of our Father's smile is eclipsed by the clouds and darkness. But let us remember that God never really does forsake us. Poor, distressed soul, who once lived in the sunshine of God's face, but is now in darkness. Remember that he has not really forsaken you. God in the clouds is as much our God as when he shines forth in all the beauty of his grace. So, the intertestamental period, excuse me, intertestamental period reveals the Lord will be silent during seasons of our relationship with Him. Next, letter B, the Lord will seem inactive when He is active. Just as I described what was happening to set the chess table up during those 400 years of silence before the birth of Christ, the Lord does the same with us. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, my father is always working and so am I. Despite the encouragement of John, it's John 5.17 if you want to look that up later. Uh, I, on the one hand, I find that verse encouraging, my father's always working and so am I. But on the other hand, I've also found it difficult Difficult to believe because we often can't see what God is up to until he reveals what he's up to. And then even still, there are times when he doesn't reveal. He reveals nothing. I have found more times than not during a season of silence or waiting period that the Lord was actually working on me. How about you? He was getting me ready for what he was going to do next. 
This brings up an, another struggle. I, I think if we were all honest with each other, and we should be because this is church, right? Um, most of us, we don't think we need to be worked on. And I'm like that too. I'm ready, Lord. I can take whatever you give me. No, you can't. If the Lord is currently giving you the silent treatment, I want to encourage you to go through your biblical checklist. Uh, ask yourself, am I truly saved? Because there are people in the New Testament that are self-deceived, false converts. Double check. Have I truly received Christ as my Lord and Savior? Can I point to a time, just as I talked about last week, where I was walking along, living my sinful life, thinking I'm too sexy for my shirt, and the Holy Spirit anvil dropped on me, brought me to repentance and faith, and it was my but God moment. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But God showed up, and then things changed. Uh, ask yourself, do I have any unrepentant sin in my life? Because the scriptures tell me that if I have cherished or loved sin in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. That's in Psalm 66. Am I being faithful in the spiritual discipline, spending time with the Lord and worship and, and, and doing my devotions to make sure I can hear from Him? Uh, ask, ask yourself, am I praying for something God would want for me because I could find it in the Scriptures, or am I just praying for something I want but I don't really need? So if you've checked all those boxes, then trust that He is like the stage manager at a play before the play has began. He's behind the curtain making sure everything is in place before the lights go down and the curtain is pulled back for his big reveal. Next, the next thing that the intertestamental period tells us about the Lord is uh, letter C, the Lord will break his silence when we least expect it. He, he will speak eventually. He will move eventually. He will show what he's up to eventually. The curtain will be pulled back eventually. Often when we least expect it. And that's what we see in the Christmas story, the birth of Christ. Jesus was born when most of the people in the world had stopped wishing, hoping, or expecting the Messiah to come. And in my humble opinion, it made his arrival even better. I'm not sure how long it took, but at some point during the intertestamental period, the silence of God became the new normal. Instead of the ex exception. And when that happens, God's people will begin to think that things will never change. Well, this is just how it's going to be. God's done speaking. Heaven is closed. The prophets are out of business. This is it. But interestingly, when Jesus showed up and he was born, it wasn't with shock and awe like the Jews expected. Instead, it was subtle and understated. The Jews expected their Messiah to ride down from heaven on a white horse with an uh, army of angels behind him and to just totally decimate the Roman Empire and establish Israel as the new world permanent superpower. But instead, their king was born as a baby in a stable under the cover of darkness without any pomp or circumstance. So the Lord will break his silence when we least expect it. Finally, Letter D, the fourth thing we can learn from the intertestamental period, the Lord's silence makes us better listeners. The Lord's silence makes us better listeners. When I was in junior high and senior high, I had a couple of teachers who refused to compete with the sound of noisy students in order to begin class. Did you ever have one of those teachers? And so instead of yelling and trying to get everybody under control, they would just stand at the front of the class and do what seemed counterintuitive. They'd either stand with their arms folded or would just raise a hand until the 
class realized this is, something's odd. Our teacher is standing there in front looking at us and not speaking. We should probably stop talking. I think we are like students living noisy lives, and the Lord is like those teachers who refuses to compete with the noise we create. He refuses to compete for our attention. And what's interesting, the more convenient and prevalent technology gets, the harder it will be for us to hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Most of us already live lives at a noise level that's at fever pitch, but please realize this. Although the noise level has increased in our lives and in the world, there's so many more channels trying to get our attention and speak to us, but the way the Lord speaks has not changed. Thus, sometimes the Lord will ordain a season of silence in love, in, in love, because He loves you and He loves me, in order to make us ready to listen, to make us eager to listen. To make us get quiet so we'll want to hear Him. And we'll, we'll be expecting and yearning and waiting for Him to answer that prayer or to give us that direction we need. I just have to ask, do you need to shut some things off in your life so you can hear from the Lord? Maybe you need to have somebody... Um, set the parental controls on your smartphone and then set a pass key so you can't undo it that makes your phone just lock down after dinner each night. Or maybe, and maybe it won't turn on until you 9 a.m. the next morning. So you have to do your devotions in the morning. You can't be on social media and texting all the time and doing all the stuff and carrying that little portable computer around with us. You have to put it down. That's just a suggestion, but do you need to shut some things off in your life so you can hear from the Lord? It's important because the Lord keeps His precious promises in His perfect timing, but you can't hope in His precious promises if you don't know what the promises are because you're not getting into His Word. Next, if you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. So hang a left and go to Galatians chapter 4. I don't know what acrostic you maybe learned growing up, but shortly after I got saved, I came up with my own to remember the order of some of the letters. After 1 and 2 Corinthians, I came up with, Go eat popcorn cheesy. It doesn't make sense, but well, to you, but it does to me, because that's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's how I always remember it. Galatians chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. But, oh, did you see that? It's in the ESV translation. Remember, I mentioned that last week. Usually when there's a but or a but God, it's because something in negative was being talked about prior, and then there's a pivot that's talked about that sets up, here's what God did when he intervened. So basically, in verses 1 through 3 of Galatians 4, Paul is describing what a mess we were. And then, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's number three in your outline, the final point. The Lord always keeps His promises. He always keeps His promises. That phrase, fullness of time, is really important. Some translations render it at the appropriate time. Some say at the set time or the right time, depending on which Bible you have. It's an interesting word in the original language. It was used in the first century to refer to the filling of a ship with either sailors or cargo. It paints a word picture of a defined space like a ship, a sailing ship, 
being filled with something so that it becomes completely full, where there's no more that you can put in it, or it'll sink. In this case, Paul is referring to the defined period of time the Lord had set in advance that he now filled, like a ship that was ready to set sail. World events, the rise and fall of empires, technology, language, infrastructure, etc., all the things I mentioned earlier, all positioned by the Lord so he was able to say, now the time is fulfilled. Now is the time to send my son. Now is the time to fulfill my promises. And the same is true of the promises he's orchestrating to fulfill in our lives. So if we haven't seen some of God's promises come to fruition yet that he's made to us as Christ followers, it's most likely because he hasn't filled things up yet. There's still things he's doing to set the table for the fulfillment. Now, there are over 100 detailed prophecies about the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ that all came true to the T. Now, I've included, just to give you a, a snippet of this on your handout, I've included a table. I just gave you a few about the birth of Christ, and I thought it might be helpful for your own faith if you could see the Old Testament reference to the prophecy on the left column, and then on the right column, seeing the New Testament, how it was fulfilled. You might even want to look, it up, look these up this week in your devotion times. Look up the Old Testament reference, and then look at the New Testament one. God said this. Hundreds of years passed, God did it. So, how do we apply what we've learned? I have only two application blanks, but I'm going to give you three. So, jot a third space down there. I'm going to give you three quick applications. How do we do, or what should we do, after learning these things about the Christmas story? What, is, what, is, what are these passages that we looked at call us to do today? Well, Here's the first one. Number one, trust the Lord's wisdom. Trust the Lord's wisdom. This, the, the level of detail and thoughtfulness from the Lord is a reminder that He not only knows our future needs for a Savior and King, but He's also aware of our current needs. Have you ever had kids or grandkids uh, give you a Christmas list with a long list of wants, but they call them needs? You, you need that? Yeah, 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 I have to have that. And that too? Yeah, that too, and that too, and that too, and that too. Okay. But just as, then as parents and grandparents say, we, we, we have to discern the difference between a want and a need. And in the same way the Lord does that with us. He's able to listen to our prayers and discern the difference between a want and a need. We may make everything a, a need, but he knows the difference. And that's why sending Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior meets our greatest need, and therefore loving him should be our greatest want because he knows us better than ourselves next we should trust the Lord's timing and it's one thing to trust the Lord but it, it's, it seems like at a PhD level of trust to trust his timing the intertestamental period in the Christmas story remind us that the Lord has a timetable for his plans but the struggle comes with the fact that his timing is almost always different than ours. I mean, come on, let's be honest, because remember we're in church. Have you ever seen the Lord come through with an answer in prayer and go, oh, Lord, that is exactly when I would have done it. I mean, I'm so glad. I mean, you were right on time, Jesus. Thank you. But that's why trusting the Lord means trusting his timing, which is hard. 
So whether it's a bill that needs to be paid, a job, a car, a spouse, or healing, Matthew 6, 8 reminds us that he knew the need before we even knew about it. And he will deliver in his perfect timing. Next, number three, trust the Lord's track record. That's one of the reasons I gave you the table on your handout. There's a, there's a track record being shown there that covers a few centuries. Promise made on the left column, promise answered and delivered in the right column. And there's plenty more you can find online or in a study Bible. There are resources you can see even more of these prophecies fulfilled. But the Lord's past record of faithfulness should remind us that he's still faithful today. And the promises fulfilled in the Christmas story should encourage you and I that he's still in the promise-keeping business. So long as we are careful not to claim promises that don't apply to us, we can expect the Lord to come through in his perfect timing. So we've got to be careful that we don't project onto the Lord, hey, your word says, how come you ain't doing it? We've got to be careful that we don't take something out of context and try to hold the Lord to it when he's going, I never promised you that. That's just something I did in one season for one person. That's not a general promise I've made to Christ followers. So we've got to be careful with that. Well, I read a story a while back about a pastor who went to visit a senior saint uh, bound to his chair with rheumatoid arthritis. And despite his handicap, this godly man had his Bible open in front of him on his lap. And at one point during their visit, the pastor noticed that the senior saint had written the word proved in several places in his Bible in the margins. And so when he asked the significance of that word, the gentleman explained that whenever he experienced the fulfillment of a promise from God, he would write proved next to it in the margin. Perhaps you should consider doing the same. Because the Lord keeps his precious promises in his perfect timing. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.